Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode four of the Books, Books, Books Griffith Review series. It's wonderful once again to welcome Dr. Ashley Hay, editor of Griffith Review, to talk about edition 75, Learning Curves. The writing in this issue ranges broadly from childcare and preschool education through the public-private school divide in primary and high school and the current changes facing universities. We hear from teachers, education academics, policymakers, writers, students and poets. Ash, welcome again to Books, Books, Books. It's great to have you back. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Now, we're going to divide our discussion today into segments, as it were. We're going to talk about early childhood education. We're going to talk about primary and high school. We're going to talk about higher education. And we're going to talk about First Nations storytelling. So let's start now with early childhood education. It's very clear from many of the writers in this book how important early childhood care and education is. I think it's Brie Lee who points out that 85 to 90% of brain development occurs in the first five years of life, which is pretty staggering. However, this seems to be a system in crisis. Staff are so poorly paid that 73% of them plan to leave the sector in the next three years. And words like exhaustion, resignation and fury keep coming up to describe those working in the sector. I'd like to talk to you, first of all, about the essay by Brie Lee, writer and academic, who writes about early childhood education and care. A major problem that she identifies right near the beginning of her essay is what she calls the gendered distinction between care and education for Mm. young people. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. Do you know, Nick, this is something that um, I'd never spelt out clearly even for myself and I say that as someone who has a child and through went through all the decisions that we made about you know where he was and what he was doing and where I was working but one of the huge complexities Australia's all the levels of Australia's education systems are so complex partly because we're a federated network of states partly because um, you know, and different governments come in and like changing policies and trying new things. But it, right back at this first, this first level, this first band, there are these two systems butting up against each other, and we call one child care, and that second part of that word is important, and we call the other one early childhood education. And these two systems, um, you know, kind of coexist in a way that is. Uh, complex in terms of funding, complex in terms of opportunity, uh, complex in terms of spread of provision, all these sorts of things. It's a system that uh, drives parents mad trying to unravel, you know, where they are, what's available, what their child needs, how different elements of government support will and won't 
kick in for different options in these spaces. Um, and, and that's even before you sort of look at the kind of more philosophical questions about how you want your child to engage with the world, how you want your child to learn about learning or to, um, you know, discover things or to start being curious or whatever those sort of other kind of more intellectual and exploratory ideas are. So I think one of the points that's really clear in Bree's piece and, and, and she brings a really beautiful clarity to this essay, partly driven, I think, by the fact that she's not in this space. She doesn't have children. Um, she is exactly the age, you know, that, you know, by average law of averages and all those sorts of things, she should be. Um, but she just tries to unravel the two different systems, the origins of two different systems, care on one hand, education on the other, um, the opportunities for women, the expectations for women, um, the way politicians who, for a large part, are not women, tend to think about and support and um, advocate for one system over the other and just the sort of great big globular mess that is created out of all of this, which has these, you know, beautiful new little people moving into it every year as the next cohort of, you know, what we would all love to think was going to be Australia's lifelong learners. I agree with everything that you said. And as a, as a, also as a mother who's gone through that system myself, I didn't properly understand the distinction until I read this essay. Something she pointed out that I didn't know was the sort of bifurcation of funding that by and large the federal government is responsible for daycare funding but it's state governments that are responsible for preschool learning. But even within that sort of divide, she says there's inconsistency. So, for example, some state governments provide free preschool education and others don't. So it's a hybrid system and there's just a lot of confusion and inconsistency within it that she points out. That's right. And another thing that she points out too is that a lot of what is available to you will depend on postcode. It'll depend on geography. Um, it will depend on socioeconomic uh, circumstances of a kind of a, a broader civic space as well as your own personal circumstances. Um, there have been big pushes to get uh, free preschooling, you know, really targeted at specific parts of the population. There are a lot of philanthropic organisations working in this space now as well. I think um, Bree spoke quite a bit to the Thrive by Five group who were supported by the Minjaru Foundation. There are all these different, uh, all these different levers and mechanisms being pointed at different parts um, of the problem and, and, and even using the word problem isn't quite right. We shouldn't be thinking of the beginning of childhood learning and education as a problem. Um, there are all sorts of, uh, you know, pieces of research done around play-based learning, around, you know, all those, all those divisions about, about when education should kick in and what we define as education. So this is a, a massively complex area. There are a couple of lines in Bruce's piece that I will I will forever carry with me. Um, just getting the sense of her, of the size of the thing that she is grappling to understand in all of this. And one of them, there's one line where she just says, you know, quite, quite matter-of-factly, hold all this in your mind. And it is. It is this thing of this this bit of funding, there's this historical fact, there's this expectation, there's, there's this set of demands, there's this set of requirements. 
And there's another line which I think is sort of roughly in the same space where she says something like, you know, if this all sounds absurd, that's because it is. But the other thing that I really loved was that at some point, as, you know, happens in um, in a democracy, a review is called of all of these sorts of bits and pieces of legislation and policy and funding and provision and, you know, somebody, a, a, a group of experts are sent in to sit down map it all out and work out what we need to do. And the mess is so complex that even the experts in their report have to say they couldn't fully understand what was going on. So it's not um, a particularly upbeat place to start the conversation, but um, I was really I was really taken by the way, you know, I think a lot of the power of Bree's writing in, in her other essays and in her books is, is the way she brings herself into the piece. She, she isn't in this piece in that way because she doesn't have children, but she just, she just has this beautiful tenacity to keep pulling in the next bit and the next bit and the next bit and trying to make sense of it all. And, um, I think, uh, the the sort of resonant point at the end of just this kind of clarion call for change for the sake of the children, for the sake of the women who are trying to, you know, keep everything up in the air as we all are in terms of everything. Um, I think just that sort of clarity of saying, you know, we've got to be able to do better than this where we are a very wealthy nation and we've got to actually make some pretty radical changes here. That early childhood education and care should be both universal and free. Yes. And I really like the way she changed the emphasis. She, she pointed out that conservative writers and politicians talk about childcare as if they're doing a favour to women by allowing them to go back to work. But she switches and says, no, 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 the emphasis on is on the human right of every child. That's right. And I think um, there is still, and particularly in Australia maybe, there is such potency in the idea of universal provision of education because we had we had that little window um, and I think it's it's very important to keep that memory it's it's a memory that is alive in a lot of people in Australia because they benefited from that window when there was um, you know universal access to tertiary education in Australia from 1974 I think it came in um, under the Whitlam government but it's it's there's still a power in that idea there's a power in the idea that that existed in that space relatively recently and so many different writers in the book came around to this point of saying we have to remember we did this um, New Zealand is in the process of uh, reintroducing universal access to tertiary education. Um, yeah, I think it's it's an important kind of factor just to keep in play wherever we can. Somebody else who wrote powerfully about this early childhood space, and that's Catherine Keenan, mm. the co-founder of the Story Factory. She presents some very alarming statistics. She points out that literacy in Australia has been declining for some years, and a statistic that was really terrifying to me was that 44% of Australian adults lack the necessary literacy skills, she says, for everyday activities. And her essay is all about how critically important that period is. She says not just from birth, she says from before birth in terms of reading and early literacy. Could you tell us a little bit about her essay, Ash? I was really thrilled to um, be able to ask Kath to write this piece 
for us. I'm a, a big fan of the work that the Story Factory does in terms of um, not just literacy but providing creative writing opportunities to lots of students in Sydney and, you know, they've got other programs more regionally now as well. And Kat's a writer who I really like. She's got a, um, a background uh, in arts journalism and um, she's she's got a voice that I really love. And we wanted to explore this kind of naught to five reading space for this edition. Um, and I, I thought she would be precisely the person to do it. And I think, again, um, Kath and I bonded over um, a similar experience we'd had, again, as mothers, of kind of coming across this idea that, that um, literacy was something to think about before birth and wondering what on earth that could possibly mean. And Kath has an anecdote in her piece about, you know, feeling slightly foolish sitting there reading books to a child that can't even hold its own head up yet. Um, and I can also remember similarly thinking, you know, who's this benefiting? My sort of sense of myself filling in 10 minutes. or um, So this research about how brains wire up, how we learn not just to read and not just those sort of literacy skills, but how all of this kind of neural and cognitive development intersects really powerfully, really quickly, really early on. It's a fascinating space. And there are a lot of programs now, book gifting programs, I guess is a, it's a pretty dismissive way of describing them, um, but they are designed to get books into the hands of parents with very young children. So some run from birth, some kick in when children are two, um, some literally just give a parent a book, some try to scaffold the book with um, information about why this kind of um, shared experience of reading with your child matters or a bit about the cognitive development or a bit about the different skills. But it's it's just this very interesting sort of groundswell, partly driven by some big philanthropic Tropic groups, Dolly Parton's Imagination Library is a massive example, which, you know, started in the US and is now um, operating in different countries around the world, including in Australia. In Australia, they um, partner with, uh, I think the group is United Way in Tamworth, and they have a program from birth there, which is about, you know, again, not just the provision of the books, but also making sure that young parents are connected in with um, early childhood health services and with libraries and with council support. And so just seeing seeing the reading as integral to all the questions of development and health, again, not just for the child, but also in a sense for the parent and, and sort of enriching and supporting everybody's development in this space. Um, so there's some beautiful anecdotes in Kat's piece uh, about, you know, gorgeous examples she opens with the example of a of a senior policeman in the western suburbs of sydney um, who keeps a box of books in the station um, because he knows how important it is to put books in the way of people because he was a kid who didn't have access to books and didn't have access to words in that way and it's a it's a it sounds like a simple thing but just also coming back to the point that you mentioned from Kath's piece about the the decline in literacy rates i can remember relatively recently um, coming across 
uh, the statistics around literacy in Tasmania, which is something that another one of the pieces by Erin Hortle touches on in this collection. And it's certainly a story that's received a lot of um, coverage, I guess, over the past few years. And it was relatively shocking. There are similarly shocking statistics in Queensland as well, which, you know, I find personally confronting. But it's even more confronting to realise, I'm just reading Julianne Schultz's, I'm rereading Julianne Schultz's book, The Idea of Australia at the Moment, and one of the things she refers to a couple of times around the Federation of Australia is that Australia was a really early adopter of what it called universal and compulsory education. They found ways of um, excluding First Nations people a lot, but this is in the 19th century. There were big programs of universal and compulsory education. And when Australia became a nation in 1901, it was one of the most literate. It had one of the highest rates of literacy in the world. Now, of course, that figure is problematic because, again, it excludes an entire portion of the population. But it's fascinating to think about that as a baseline. Um, um, if I say a remarkable baseline, I mean it's you know it's really worth remarking on, literally remarkable, and that the. the the speed with which, that's, that's 121 years ago now, the speed with which we find ourselves with these shocking percentages in the high 40s and over 50% in some instances, um, I think that's you can have a lot of conversations about how these things are being measured, you know, what the metrics are, all of those things, but it's still a pretty shocking change to go from this Australia on the 1st of January in 1901 to this Australia in 2022. And one of the things that Kath points to in her piece is that unlike the US, the UK and Canada, Australia doesn't have a national strategy for early literacy. And I thought that was really interesting as well. She argues strongly that we need one. Mm -hmm. And she um, talks about an organisation, I've only got the acronym here, NELLC, um, that recently did release a proposed national strategy. And she argues that that could make a real difference, doesn't she? She does, um, and I can tell you it is the National Early Learning, no, I'm sorry, the National Early Language and Literacy Coalition. And, yes, I think this is where um, the sort of patchwork nature of Australia gets really interesting. We're, we're all very used to hearing conversations about the national curriculum now. We know what everybody thinks about certain elements of that um, and how contested different bits and pieces of that are. And I think when we hear that and we know about NAPLAN and we know about these sort of national initiatives, you would assume that these national frameworks exist. And there was a there was a quote that I used in the introduction to this um, edition. It's from um, Dean Ashenden, who is a, a co-founder of Australia's now very long-running Good Universities Guide, and he talks about the unique and dysfunctional fundamentals of the Australian school system. Because of all these different layers, there are three sectors of schooling. Each has its own sources and levels of funding. Each has its own different kind of regulation of how you select students. There's different forms of government. So there's eight states and territories. There's the kind of federal thing over the top. And he ends up saying there's a total of 24 educational jurisdictions in Australia. And that sounds crazy. But it starts to make sense of why you've got the sort of um, spider's web of, you know, messiness that Bree is unpacking in the early childhood slash child early education childcare space 
but also then, you know, this kind of need for overarching, um, just overarching standards, I guess. And I say that knowing that, you know, the next person we could talk about in the book is Parsi Salberg, who works at this sort of uh, very high policy level um, and, you know, would probably argue that the last thing you need is another bit of policy just sticky taped in on top of everything else. So swings and roundabouts all over the place in this one. So I think it's Parsi or it is Parsi who makes the very important and obvious point. He talks about the Gonski Review a decade ago and he says Australia has spent a lot of research. Sorry, Australia has done a lot of research, has spent a lot of money, received lots of advice about how to improve our educational system. But there's one stark fact that we can't avoid, and that is that the OECD PISA, now this acronym I have noted, the Program for International Student Assessment Tests, which evaluate the performance of Australia's Year 9 students in reading, maths and science, show, and it's incontrovertible, that Australia is one of nine countries which shows a steep decline since 2000 in performance. And he says if that was happening, or I think it might be Andrew Lee that says if that was happening in any other sphere, if that was happening in the economic sphere, we'd call that a major depression. We need to look and try to understand why that's happening. And there's a number of writers that talk about it here. I want to talk, first of all, about Andrew Lee, who mm. is currently a federal MP, but was previously an ANU professor of economics. His piece, Schooled, I think is absolutely fascinating. And he talks about the different, he talks about all of the different levels, the preschool level, the primary and high school level, the university level. In this particular space where he's talking about primary and high schools, he says that what we need to do is make teacher quality the main policy focus. He points to evidence that shows that there are less high achievers becoming teachers and he has some suggestions as how we can improve that and how we can improve teacher quality. Would you like to talk a bit about that? I think there's a fascinating conversation between Andrew Lee's piece, Schooled, and another piece in here by Gabby Stroud. And some people will remember Gabby. Gabby um, describes herself on her business card as a recovering teacher, which is a line I like very much. Um, Gabby wrote her first essay when she stepped out of the school system for Griffith Review. It's about six years ago now, and it was about, um, it was about her decision to step away. And she then wrote a book called Teacher, which was hugely popular um, in terms of talking about the conditions that teachers work under and work with, increasingly complex, increasingly poorly resourced, increasingly demanding. Um, and she then wrote a book called Dear Parents to try to explain it, you know, to the people on the other side of the equation. Where it's it's really interesting reading the language in Andrew's piece. The first time I read it, I felt this sort of visceral, oh my goodness, he's saying, <laughs> he's saying these people aren't good enough. And you know, I've got this other piece, and you know, it was, but I I um an emotional response. And to drill into what he's talking about, which is to look at who becomes teachers. Where the teachers who are, you know, really the people who make the best and most wonderful connections, where they end up teaching, how long they stay in the system, which is another massive problem, and to focus on, you know, really making that a workplace and an experience that, that attracts different people and retains them, that, that feels, you know, that dovetails so extraordinarily with the, 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 
the real pain and despair that Gabby is writing about her piece for us in this book is about teacher well-being. We're going to um, come back to that shortly. Yeah, but I think it is. I think just this thing of looking at who who goes into this profession, how are they supported, what is what is required of them and why, and the the people who who really do wonderfully, where do they tend to turn up? Now, I, I, this is a, um, I'm, I'm conscious that in this conversation we're having, I keep coming back to, you know, this example in my life or, and this is one of the things about education. This is, this is a topic that everyone has some intersection in with. Game. That's right, skin in the game. Your, you know, your own experience, your child's experience, your parents' experience, whatever it is. Um, one of the things that's always fascinated me watching, um, you know, the, the group of friends that I came out of high school with and went through university with, so we're now in our early 50s, there were so many people who went into teaching were phenomenal teachers. They have all, without exception, almost without exception, they are all now out of classrooms in, um, in either management positions in schools or in policy positions in the department. That's the kind of promotional um, ladder that it's always seemed is is pretty incontrovertible, um, and that feels odd to me. It's it's almost like punishing people for being good at what they do by removing them. So I think the the quality issue the the, the semantics can feel tricky, um, but just looking at who is there, why they're there, and how you support them to be there and to do their best. And how you get them to the schools where there are fewer resources, where there are, um, you know, where there are different um, conditions and constraints on what is being offered to kids around the edges, trying to unravel that, which does get into the very big quagmire of the private-public divide, you know, which resources are provided externally you know, which families have the means and the interest and the capacity to do what for their children, all of those things. That's a really, really tricky, tricky space um, for Australians who like to believe that everything's equal and fair in, in some um, horrible shorthand about the country. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting one and I think it's one where um, we need a lot more conversation. We need to find ways of having conversation with some of that um, very entrenched heat taken out of the different positions. I mean, he points to inequities even within the public system itself, to the fact that he, he attributes that to some extent to the issue of uniformity of salaries. Just It just happens that in many cases the better teachers are attracted to the um, advantaged areas and perhaps the ones who are less talented end up in the more disadvantaged areas. And one thing that he suggests is you get away from that uniformity of salary and that you pay teachers who work in disadvantaged areas more, which I thought was an interesting suggestion. Yeah, it's looking at the outcome slightly differently, isn't it? And, again, it feels sort of odd um, to be proposing that because I think we do have this sense of this being a profession um, you with these sort of baselines and these sort of universal provisions and expectations, but we can see really clearly that it is not that system. Um, and so I can't remember if it is in, I think it is in Andrew's piece as well as in Parsi's piece, Parsi Salberg's piece, they both come to this point of talking about the importance of a bipartisan approach. Um, this is, you know, something there used to be a pretty much 
a sort of bipartisan agreement about the importance of tertiary education funding, tertiary education, um, which doesn't really feel like it exists (laughs) at the moment. Um, But I think when I talk about taking the heat out, it's that's that's one sort of acknowledgement of the really politically ribbon space that education feels like it has become. Um, But it is also a way just of saying, you know, we've got to find a different way of having these conversations. We can see on things like the PISA measures, and I agree with Andrew Lee that if you saw that that sort of percentage of decline anywhere else, it would be a national scandal. Um, what What is it that is allowing us to reframe it so that we don't have to engage with it? Is it because we're all, you know, convinced that as consumers of education we're all making the right decision and so that problem must exist somewhere else and be happening to someone else I don't know I mean there's a whole lot of language in there that's a bit troublesome when you dig into it too Um, but yeah I think the bipartisan idea is um, is a really interesting one to flag at the moment as well. Let's talk now about Gabby Stroud former teacher who wrote the best-selling memoir Teacher in 2018. She writes about the massive outflow what you've well outflow people leaving the profession and she talks about a recent study by the New South Wales Teachers Federation showing that two-thirds of teachers are reconsidering their future in in the as teachers which is really frankly terrifying and also writes about how many of them are suffering from anxiety and depression why is this Ashley what does she put it down to what are the main challenges facing primary and high school teachers Just a small question, Nick. Um, Well, I think there is a really interesting intersection with Parsi's piece here as well. I know we're going to talk about it, but both of them used exactly the same phrase, exactly the same image to describe a big part of the problem, which is to think about the primary and secondary education systems as an over-decorated Christmas tree. So, so much stuff has been put on, so many plans, so many programs, so many um, incentives, so many, so many schemes, so many everythings. Um, it is just this overwhelming mass of stuff and the stuff translates into things that have to be, well, specific things that have to be taught a specific way, that have to be reported on a specific way, that have to be negotiated and managed a specific way. Um, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of different, um, there is more resources and support in some ways, but teachers are really on their own in other ways. That can be at a really, you know, basic kind of, um, you know, administrative level even. There is there is so much that they're having to do, um, so many ways to that they're supposed to be communicating with parents and with their students and with each other. And and then on top of it, you know, oh, my goodness, suddenly there's all these stats about anxiety and depression. So the next thing they have to care about is their own well-being, teacher well-being, and that's the next thing. It's another meeting and it's it's another kind of compulsory whatever, um, you know. I think she sees it quite cynically um, as just the next way to make a teacher do another thing. And she, one of those anecdotes that she told me really early on when we started talking about her writing this piece um, was that she had been asked to give a speech somewhere which would touch on teacher wellbeing and she started the speech by saying, I'm presuming you all know the way to Dan Murphy's and that was that her line. reference. That thing of going, okay, is teacher wellbeing a seminar that you have to attend at 4.30 on a school afternoon or is teacher wellbeing leaving school 
oh, let's say not even at 4.30 in the afternoon, but maybe at 4 and going home and taking your dog for a walk. And if, if you are trying to sort of, um, you know, if you are trying to have these these nationwide metrics and these these systems that spread across everything, it does mean that everything has to be comparable somehow and that's very complicated. I think one of the most heartbreaking things um, for Gabby and for the sort of advocacy work that she has found herself in in the six years since she wrote her first piece for Griffith Review in the four years since the book came out, she was telling me uh, just yesterday that when Teacher was published, she got a lot of emails from either young people just finishing their qualifications and heading out into the system for the first time or people who were just in their first or second year of teaching and they would email her and they would say, you've got it wrong. It's not that bad. It's going to be fine. You know, you're wrong. This, It's changed. It's changing. I'm part of the change. Now she's starting to receive emails, not just from the same cohort of people, but literally from the same people saying, you were right, um, I was in the system and I am leaving, um, I'm out. And I think uh, we all are very aware of the ways the pandemic has impacted on so many facets of society. We know that schooling has been a very different experience both for the students and for the teachers and there's no question that the last two years have been hard in ways that nobody really has had to navigate before. Um, but I'm not sure that uh, you could slate all of those um, resignations down to the pandemic. Um, and Gabby, I think, feels very keenly the weight of being the person who talks about these things and advocates for change and is essentially seeing another generation of people betrayed by a profession that should be one of the most valued in a society. She talks about the need for big transformational change and I love the way that she sort of describes it in that she starts by saying and it's a refrain through the essay, oh, you're lucky, and then she says where, where she'd like it to end up. She wants to see increased trust in teachers and increased respect for them and she says she's seen some of that during COVID because parents have actually had an insight but she will feel that there's really been a big improvement when someone says I'm a teacher and someone responds, wow, that's a really challenging job. Tell me about that. Absolutely. And that would also mean that, you know, going back to Andrew Lee's point about um, attracting and retaining very engaged and effective teachers, that is like those conversations and, and that sort of reframing of expectation, I think that's part of that as well. It's, um, <laughs> as you say, it's it's... This is a space where the, the other analogy that you could use, uh, apart from the over-decorated Christmas tree, is, is the thing that's got too many bits of sticky tape and Band-Aids stuck on it. And at a certain point, this is another phrase I'm making from Julianne Schultz, you know, she's in my head at the moment reading this book, but at some point you have to go back to first principles and say, what is it that we want this to be? And... If we can't do that in education, which is literally our future, it is literally we will get, you know, we will reap what we sow in this space like like no other in lots of ways. Um, 
yeah, what what are we saying about these these children that we're investing in and about our our sense of the future for all of us? Finnish educational expert and policy guru, Pazi Salberg, we've talked about a little bit. He echoes Gabby's call for major change and he focuses on the lack of equity and he says that there's a need for major structural change which he describes as a moral obligation. He's talking a lot about the public-private divide and he starts from the premise that in Finland there are no private schools. Every child just goes to the local public school. So tell us a little bit about his essay and about some of the points that he makes. I think we all know... um the the success of the Finnish system or of the Scandinavian system of education is is pretty well known now. You know, it's almost a bit of a stereotype or a bit of a shorthand. Um, and and I can remember talking with friends who were particularly in primary education about why this was a lot, lot of years ago. Just saying, what is it? And what is it that they do so differently? What is it that they that they get right? Um, and some teachers, you know, there are programs to take Australian uh, teachers and educators to Finland to, you know, to, to research there, to work there for a while. There are all these fabulous exchanges. No one ever said to me, um, well, part of the thing, Ash, is you don't have to think about education in Finland. There is no choice to make. So Parsi comes to Australia. He came to work at the Gonski Institute at the University of New South Wales. He's just finishing up there now. Um, and he has to enrol his two children into one into primary school and one into into that quagmire of um, daycare or early childhood education. Um, and he's never, as he says, he's never had to think about this like a consumer before. And as soon as you, I, I, I remember again coming back to my experience when I went to school. You went to the school that you went to. You went to the local school. That was it. I was interested when I had my son hearing people talk about, you know, they were almost auditioning schools. They were going around and they were they were looking at different places. It hadn't really occurred to me that you should do that. I Maybe I had a more innately Scandinavian sense of it. But I think once you start to understand that, that equity actually means the removal of choice, which we, we which we hear is a pretty confronting thing um, in our society. But then you start to step through what that means in terms of resources that remain in the family, because you know, he has some amazing statistic about what what a week of childcare costs compared to, you know, a year of the same kind of provision of um, education in Finland. So if you put the resources in, if you take out all that sort of just the energy of making the decision and then you start to look at it just in terms of, you know, wherever you are, the, the food is, you know, the food is the same, the, the instruction is the same, the resources are the same, the facilities are the same, that changes everything immediately. And um, Parsi builds this essay for us and I love this. He builds it around the Gonski report. He builds it around um, his kind of conversations with Australian education across a lot of years before he moved here. But he also builds it around one speech that he gave in the Opera House. And so he picks up on this lovely idea of Scandinavian design. He riffs on the idea of, you know, Utzon, the Danish architect, and, you know, the kind of architects of Scandinavian educational policy. 
And he just talks about, you know, very things like form and function and simplicity and structure and support. And it's a beautifully lyrical and metaphorical piece in a lots of ways, saying some very big things, but in a very simple and elegant way. And I think one of the things that's lovely about that is he is calling for radical change as well, radical transformation like Gabby. But the language and the imagery that he's using, you feel like it's possible. You know the Opera House got built against all odds. That amazing design got built in, you know, a a crazily conservative New South Wales of the 1960s and 70s. So he makes you feel like it is possible. And that kind of hope and optimism I think is phenomenally important in all these conversations um, around all the different levels of, the education sector. When he expresses it so beautifully, it just seems impossible to argue with. He says, there can be no educational excellence without greater equity. And that's just his bottom line. And as you say, he makes it seem that that's possible. I thought it was interesting. He emphasises two things, political will. There has to be, as you say, this is the point you made earlier, that there has to be bipartisan political agreement and really agreement by the public as well, that education is a fundamental public good, that it is in everybody's interest. It's not a privilege. It's a fundamental right. It's a fundamental good. And he also talks about the need for professional skill, the rely on educational experts. I thought that was interesting. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Well, I think this is a space that um, we're familiar with, isn't it, in terms of how how we hear experts and how we Oh, how we sort of take on board what they're saying. I can't, I think it is in Parsi's piece, and in fact I think you referred to it before, of just talking about the enormous amount of money that's been spent on good educational research in Australia. Australia is a leader in terms of educational research to the point where lots of people outside of Australia go, well, okay, if you've got this industry of extraordinary educational research, what is going wrong? What is wrong with your system? Um, that's an interesting thing to kind of sit with and think about for a little while. I think it is, you know, it's 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 the positive of um, the the relationship we rediscovered with experts around COVID, around the pandemic, where we went back to that sort of layer of or element of trust um, and of understanding that they had a job to do. It was their job to think about things for us and tell us how to do things. Um, it's a space for you know all of us who. Um, are engaged with trying to write about and talk about climate. It's a space where um, we're very aware of all the gaps and um, kind of diminutions of um, expert advice that we've got away with for a long time. And I was interested, I guess, particularly in that context to think, well, you know, this is this is like the climate conversation. We have the experts telling us here are ways that this could be other and better they are achievable, they will require some radical thinking, but there is no reason that we can't do it. Um, They might require, you know, some people to feel like they have less choice than they currently have. They will open up enormous opportunities for other people. Um, We just have to kind of bite the bullet and say it matters. I think that's what's interesting with um, it's it's a very glib thing to say this needs to come down to bipartisan political support in some ways. What makes a politician change how they think about something is what the what they think the public will vote for. So in a sense, 
it is all the parents, um, all the consumers of education, to come back to that horrible language, who need to say, actually, we don't think this should be running in these terms anymore and we would be more likely to vote for you if you said we are taking the politics out of this now, this is across the board, how we do this thing in Australia for every single Australian student at every level of their schooling. To universities and the three of the writers that I've picked out that write about this are Ray Wynne Connell, who's been a student teacher and researcher in the university space for 50 years, Andrew Lee, who we've already talked about, and Willem Croucher, who's a higher education researcher and analyst. One of them, I'm not sure which one it was, makes a point that by, I think it's Croucher, that by many measures, Australian universities are hugely successful. There's great student satisfaction. They've got a wonderful international reputation. And in fact, by 2019, I thought this was really interesting, pre-COVID, one in three students were from overseas, $10 billion in fees, we'll come back to that, and education was one of our three major exports. Why then, they ask, is higher education in crisis? Those are the words that Connell uses. Unsettled, the words that Croucher uses. And all of them seem to argue that, as you pointed out earlier, there were already challenges pre-COVID, but these have been very much exacerbated by COVID. So let's have a look, first of all, at why it was that even pre-COVID, universities were in crisis or at least were facing enormous challenges. I think there was um, there was a change in, in fun, how funding came into universities um, that certainly predates the pandemic. Um, in terms of uh, just the sense of government, federal government priorities, um, certainly for people working within the sector, uh, it would be incorrect to say that it was only the last two years where they'd felt slightly at risk. Um, so those changes in funding, which have, you know, happened across a period of time, meant that universities had to change uh, the way that they got money. And the way that most of them went was to uh, work towards attracting international students. I find it really fascinating that, and I think it is possibly right to say at an institutional level, so amongst all the institutions, but even possibly also at a federal government level, you know, I think the federal governments were all happy that this was how this was working now, this money was coming in. It seems really odd that just in terms of risk management, nobody ever said, what happens if the tap turns off? Um, I'm not sure any of us imagined how quickly the tap could be turned off. Um, I think we probably all had a pretty clear sense of the, the fluidity of the world and its globalisation, but still it strikes me as interesting that, um, you know, there, there wasn't a plan B in that way. Um, yeah, so I think when, when the pandemic began, uh, and, you know, Griffith Review sits inside Griffith University and so part of what has been fascinating in the last two years has been, you know, not just working to keep a small literary journal moving forward on deadline and extent, um, but also watching the mechanics of this much bigger tertiary institution um, just navigate this really unimaginable space, an unimaginable space in the context of actually keeping education provision going for the students who either were still in the country or could access things online. That was a massive 
shift, just like it was for primary schools and secondary schools, but also then these people who literally couldn't get back here or couldn't get home, you know, were trapped one place or the other. Um, students who, you know, might have completed just the first year of their degree and had, you know, in all good faith happily gone home for the summer break and suddenly could not come back to where they were partway through an education. Um, I, I think that that watching just to to watch massive institutions, to use that awful word we all used, have to pivot so amazingly quickly was extraordinary that it that it butted up against um, this sort of uh, diminishment of funding and that it then collided with a raft of changes around fees that were going to be charged going forward in Australian higher education and butted up against the absolutely undeniable fact that uh, JobKeeper legislation was amended three times to exclude universities. So that, I think, um, <laughs> didn't give anyone a great sense of happiness moving through the past few years. And so, again, some of the other things pre-COVID that some of the writers talk about is the increasing casualisation. And as you say, that the return to a fee charging, a student fees in the late 80s, a lot of them say, led to this corporatisation and this division and this distrust, as it were, between those that were managing the universities and were given the jobs of, of almost running it like a business. Is that something that you can comment on? I think the fees are interesting. So there's the there's the halcyon moment that, you know, changes so many people's lives and, like, literally changes people's lives when Whitlam removes fees from tertiary education. Um, and that lasts for, you know, I think it's oh, what is it, about 15 years? Um, and then uh, it is a Labor government who bring in HEX, but they're quite modest fees and you can defer them. And um, the argument is that this is about, you know, getting more money into the system and it's it's supposed to be it's supposed to be a sustainable system. And that's a long way from where we are now, I guess. Um, the questions of the... The questions of the casualization of the workforce I find fascinating. I, I wrote a big piece for Griffith Review and I, I can't actually remember how many years ago it was now. Um, it was for an edition called The Way We Work. Um, it's got to be six or maybe seven years ago and a lot of it was around precarity and there was massive precarity in the academic employment space even then. I'm married to... Um, I'm married to an academic who is in his the second half of his 50s, who is, you know, a leader and an expert in his field who is on fixed-term contracts. That's There's nothing unusual in that, nothing unusual at all. Um, and that's someone who is, you know, by lots of measures, incredibly successful. That's right. So there's a reduction in the amounts of tenure that are offered, um, you know, it is incredibly complicated for women, particularly if they have a desire to not only have a career in research but, oh, become a mother, all of those kinds of factors. But just this increasing casualisation of, of fixed-term contracts, of sessional workers, that's been mounting and mounting and mounting for a long time. So when it collides with something like the pandemic and, you know, if you're, 
If your income um, is curtailed, you are going to look to cut costs. There is no other way around that. You don't have the big handouts that are coming to support workers in other industries and other sectors. Um, I think what's really fascinating, the numbers are frightening. The estimates range from between 20 and 40,000 jobs lost in the sector. And I keep meaning to try to find out if there are that many jobs lost in any other sector and I haven't got around to it or, you know, I don't, maybe we don't know yet. But I think what frightens me about that number is um, I'm not, well, A, I'm not sure where those people go because those jobs are not jobs that pop up in other sectors. But B, I'm not sure how that accounts for sessionals who were never on contracts in the first place or people on very short-term contracts, you know, there are, there are, you know, might be contracts that are just for three or six months or whatever. Are, the, are those contracts counted in that sort of overall loss of opportunity? This is in the sector that is about new knowledge. This is in the sector that is not just about teaching and learning. It is about new knowledge. In one of these pieces, I think it was Croucher, um, who talks about goes through university by university and the different courses that have been cut, says that something like 2,000 courses across the university sector in consequence of the cumulative effect of the loss of income from overseas students, the fact that universities were excluded from JobKeeper and the fact that there was an overall reduction in government spending. And you look at what some of those courses are and they don't look like things we should be getting rid of. Um, it's a, you know, it's a it's a behemoth of an industry. It's massive. These institutions are massive, um, and it's you know I'm I'm sure that at no point would anyone have sort of thought they would end up in the position that they're in. But again, if you come back to that idea of education for the common good. Um, and knowledge. <laughs> it's really interesting to think about what it says about our sense of ourselves as a country in terms of how we support this. When Kim Carr was um, a minister, so we are back in the last Labor government, so, you know, more, more almost 10 years ago now, maybe more, um, and I, I wish I could remember the context for this quote, but the, the line was along the lines of sort of basically saying there's no votes in higher education, standing up and saying there are these cuts or there are these shortages or there are these damaging whatever. It doesn't play with voters. And you think, well, all right, even, even at, the, at the most base level of let's all, let's all pretend we're consumers again and where are our children going to go to university and what are the courses, we should care at that level. But that's not the only level that is at play here um, and, again, it, I suppose it sort of intersects with, with that complicated relationship that we have with experts and what we want from them, what we're willing to hear from them and how we're willing to support them um, to do all the work that, yeah, maybe isn't ever the frontline stuff like solving a pandemic or inventing a vaccine but it's nonetheless incredibly important. He says universities also need to be their own best advocates. So he says during COVID there were times, I mean, he's not being overly critical, but he just makes a point. During university, during COVID, there were times where it sounded like what they were saying was a bit self-serving. And he says that what there needs to be, universities need to 
advocate for their own importance and for the importance of education. And he says what we need to have is a public conversation on the roles and the responsibilities of universities, on their benefits. Um, we need to have a public conversation about the balance between student fees and public subsidies. He makes another point that I thought was really important. Australia needs to realise that higher education is internationally regarded as extremely important. China's still putting a lot of money into it, so is the US. And his bottom line argument is you need to really generate, the universities, I guess, themselves in part, need to generate public support for what they're doing because it's only with that public support that the government will see that it's going to end up in votes for them and that will increase the government funding. It's the same. It's the same argument, isn't it? You know, what makes the politician change their mind? It's thinking that it will change how people vote and that they'll vote for them. As I say, I'm I'm really privileged to sit inside a university. You know, Griffith Review sits inside Griffith University. We are supported by the university. Um, we see the students coming through. We have access to all the researchers. We have access to all the conversations that are happening inside that space. I suppose all universities are, are bound by the idea of engagement. The reason Griffith Review exists is it is a tool of engagement. It exists to try to make conversations and, and, and you know, give people different things to think about and talk about. But that kind of, um, that kind of sense that, you know, it's, it's a fundamental need, it's a fundamental uh, requirement. Um, I wonder if there is still a bit of a sense in Australia that it is, you know, it is that sort of us and them thing. And even beyond the elite, I think it's just understanding what people actually do in universities. It's, um, you know, if you're teaching, um, I don't know, 26 weeks a year, that as a researcher, you're not not working for the other 26 weeks of the year or you know, just very simple things like, well, what, what does a researching life look like? You know, what what does make up the day? Why does this matter? You know, how does it work? How has that job changed over the last 20 years? You know, what are these people managing that they weren't managing 20 years ago in their own labs or their own projects or whatever it is? It's, um, I, I feel as if a lot of change must have happened incrementally um, and maybe even people within the universities were we're not conscious of it for a long time, but suddenly we seem to be in a space where there are a lot of disconnects. The pandemic, you know, there was that great piece by Aaron Dunny Roy right at the beginning of the pandemic where she talked about the moment of rupture, you know, this disruption, you know, we go through and what is on the other side is, you know, it's this opportunity. It's this opportunity again. We're back to the kind of radical transformation idea. Um, it's hard to think about that when what you're trying to do is keep a very large institution operating and save as many jobs as you can and, you know, try to give people some sort of sense of security, let alone give them the space to keep doing their jobs. But, but you know, I guess there is that invitation as well for saying, well, if we are remaking things here, what, are, what can we remake in this space? Raywan Connell's been thinking about this for a long time before, um, before the pandemic, I love the the, um, the anecdote that she tells in her piece about, you know, she published a book called The Good University. She was literally on the road promoting it in America when she realised she had to get on a plane and get home, otherwise she wasn't going to get back into Australia. But, you know, it's not that the thinking for this kind of transformation isn't there. Um, it's not that, you know, there isn't massive awareness in 
parts of Australia and overseas of this extraordinary export industry that we had that just got shut down. Um, it's, you know, all of those things are sort of in play. It's working out what we value and how we support it going forwards. I just do want to mention a beautiful essay by Melanie Myers. And it's a good reminder to all of us that not everybody goes to a university. Obviously, other people talk about vocational education as well in this piece. But I just want um, listeners to be aware that this is a beautiful essay on the joys of an acting career. Oh, sorry, let me rewind. On the joys of an acting degree and how it can help you in later life. And she talks about why fails, I've got using my inverted commas here, actors, so people who don't necessarily make a successful acting uh, career out of being actors can still be an asset for any business because of the wonderful education that they've got at acting school. I want to move now to talk about First Nations storytelling. That arises a little bit in a few of the essays. Kath Keenan touches, touches on it in her piece when she talks about the importance of the spoken word in early literacy and she draws mm. a parallel with how, in a way, by emphasising the spoken word, we're honouring the oral tradition of First Nations people. Lisa Fuller also talks about her experience of doing a PhD uh, as uh, an Indigenous woman in what she describes as the Eurocentric male astringency of the academy. The one I'm going to focus on, though, is a piece by Gawain Bodkin Andrews, a Dharawal man and Indigenous studies scholar. His essay is called The Colonial Storytelling of Good Intent. And in it, he shows and discusses how colonial storytelling in the past has distorted the stories of First Nations people. Would you look, like to talk a little bit about his essay, Ash? I would, and there's one really crucial thing to say first up, and it is one of the most exciting things about this essay. Um, Gawain's name is the first name of many names involved in the creation of this essay, and I think one of the things that is really um, powerful about being able to give this piece a home is that this is a piece uh, worked on in collaboration by a number of people, a number of Darrell elders who are part of a, a part of a, a knowledge circle, a part of a kind of repository of knowledge, and it mattered intensely um, to Hawaiian and it mattered intensely to us to try to represent all of those names now this is at a really basic level it's it's a complicated thing on a contents page it's a complicated thing on the back of the book um they you know i think somebody picked us up because we had a tweet that went out about the piece which only identified gawaiian and it's absolutely right that the entire collaboration needs to be acknowledged and that's partly because what's at work in this piece is the fluidity and the, the importance of ideas of exchange in how stories and knowledge move. So um, we would all be familiar with books of what were called myths and legends, I'm using the inverted commas now, uh, that you could pull off a library shelf and there would be, you know, a one-page story about something and a one-page story about something else. And, and this conversation between this group of elders um, and researchers feeds back to look at um, 
how different versions of these stories were set down on paper, by whom, what the nature of that transaction was, and then to step back further into um, into the history and the sort of the deeper history of those stories and to bring some of the complexities and richnesses and nuances back into the story. So this piece has a different structure in terms of the number of authors who are involved and it has a different sort of structure in terms of the way the story passes between two things on the page, the the writing about um, about the stories themselves and about the way they've been collected and translated is a kind way of saying it. Appropriated is probably another really useful word. But then it brings one of the stories, one of these stories back into the page itself and it, it vitalises it somehow, it brings it to life, it brings the nuance and the subtlety back. You start to see a little bit more of what is in play between these characters. You see the richness of what's going on. You see the complexity of the lessons that are involved and what looks like a very this, then this, then this simple story is suddenly this much, much more complicated and beautiful um, work of exchange. So it's, it's a gorgeous piece and an incredibly important piece, I think, because it is not only doing the work, but it is showing you the work as well in the example of this one story that it tells. I think something that um, has been profoundly important in my own um, thinking about this, and it's a, a point that Lisa Fuller makes, I don't think it's in this essay, I think it's in work that she's written elsewhere, is this shorthand of referring to First Nations myths and legends as if they are. Um, as if they are made up somehow and uh, the sort of the disrespect and the disconnect from understanding that, you know, this is, these are, these are, these are histories, this is knowledge, this is information, this is not, you know, this is not a fairy tale. This story and these ideas work at an actual physical, literal level in the world and I think that's a massive a massive kind of mind shift that would be really useful um, to make in lots of different ways. In this collection there's mm. beautiful poems and there are also I think it's four really wonderful short stories. Would you like to talk a little bit about those and the contribution they make to the collection as a whole? I love the fact that the fiction and the poetry works for the bigger conversation in each edition of Griffith Review. And in the fiction and the poetry this time, there are there are five short stories and three poems. I feel like some of the really interesting um, statements are made in these pieces and also there's some really interesting connection points. So um, I just want to look at the fiction quickly to try to kind of scoop in all of it because there are different reasons for wanting to talk about all of these pieces. Um, I want to mention particularly a piece called Double by Ellen Bickerman. Ellen is a really extraordinary emerging writer. She's won the Queensland Young Writer Award twice 
Um, we publish those winning pieces online as part of a partnership with State Library Queensland. This piece, we were really excited to give her one of our fellowships, our Arts Queensland fellowships for this year, and to give her mentoring support with Laura Elvery to work on this new piece. So we feel like it's been a really, it's a wonderful piece. It's about a young girl um, coming back to the town where she grew up uh intersecting with a very influential person she's she used to work as a cleaner for um kind of coming back to the space of a horrific event for the first time and it's beautiful it's beautiful and confronting it's not her expectations of herself but this woman's expectations of her it's a really painfully powerful story um we have an amazing piece by winnie dunn who lots of people will know from the sweatshop literacy movement when he's edited a couple of amazing anthologies there this is called real fobs and it's a it's a it's a beautifully direct um celebration or exploration of the experience of a first in family tertiary university student there are there are a lot of essays that could be written around that space. I think Winnie's uh, short story does more work than any essay or academic piece of research could do. It's it's funny. It's it's just fantastic. Um, I'm really thrilled that we've got a piece by Brendan Colley in here called University Material, um, and this piece and the piece by the short story by Raiden Richardson were both long listed for our Emerging Voices competition. Uh, in 2021 and we were they weren't on the the list of winners in the end but we were delighted to be able to find the poems here brendan's piece is again just this wonderful story about someone coming into their university education um in about the most messy and complicated way possible not helped by anyone around them uh it's again there's some beautifully humorous moments raiden's is a is a gorgeous piece about um, an Indian boy who's been left at home on his own by his parents, they've got to go back to India and sort out a funeral and he has to train, he has to keep studying for his high school entrance exam. Nothing is more important than this. He, of course, finds some other kind of educational opportunities um, to explore while they're not at home. Raiden's working uh, in the Iowa Writers Workshop at the moment. I think he's a really exciting um, emerging voice to watch as well and Brendan's first novel is going to be published later this year so you know these are these are exciting emerging people but there's also an absolutely wonderful piece by Miriam Sved who is one of Australia's you know we are we are in a there's just a richness of voices out there at the moment I'm a big fan of Miriam's work we've worked with her on an earlier novella edition and this goes right down to the other end of life two elderly women who find themselves in a hospital ward together one recognizes the other as the drama teacher from when she was a high school student decades before and it is another masterfully subtle um destruction of the assumptions that we make about our own education our own possibilities our own potential and and what's actually going on around us while we're at school and how we can kind of carry those things for years so those five pieces they bring some really different voices and perspectives in um, we've got some there are a couple of pieces uh, that we've published online as well which bring some student voices directly into play one by collaboration by David Stavanger and his son Saul which is bringing a high school student's voice onto the page and another by Ellen Rowley talking about um, just surviving that awful word that we apply to the HSC 
process. So we were really keen that it wasn't just the researchers and the policy wonks and those kinds of people who got their voices into this edition. It was the teachers, it was the students. It was as many different directions as we could go in. It's an absolutely superb book. It's very hard to pick between them. I always say, and I genuinely mean, that my brain grows enormously every time I prepare for one of our conversations and I read this beautiful book. Thank you so much for talking to me and um, I look forward to speaking to you next time about Griffith's Review 76. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.